Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, I'm pressing on in our series on the book of Psalms. And the title of the message this morning is Song of Deliverance. And it's a psalm that is a cry of one person's heart at a very low point in his life. And he's crying out to God because the only person he has left in this whole world is God. There's no one else he can turn to that really brings the kind of help he needs. I'm guessing some of us have been in such a place at some point in our lives too, where it feels like there's no one left. And even then, there's always God. I want to read Psalm 3 for you, and then I want to unpack this passage in the time that we have left. This is the word of God. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me, and many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. By the way, Selah, if you don't know what that is, and scholars are a little bit um, divided on what exactly it means, but most likely it represents a pause in the poem or the song And it's not just a pause for musical effect or to enjoy and savor the tune, but it's an invitation to reflect on what you just sang. Hear the words that came out of your own mouth and let them find their way into the depths of your heart. It's not just a girl's name. It's not just a band's name. It's a very important invitation to be quiet for a moment in the midst of singing and hear what you just sang. There's a uh, really interesting podcast called Behind the Song, hosted by Jan Delane. Any of you guys familiar with this podcast? Behind the Song. So if you like classic rock from the 70s and 80s, uh, and that's one genre of music that is near and dear to me because it's what I grew up on, Jan Delane hosts this podcast called Behind the Song where she traces out some of the stories that were going on in real life in these bands' lives as they wrote some of the songs. And have you ever listened to some music, the lyrics, and you're like, this has got to be an inside joke because I don't really know what that line means. And so the purpose of this podcast is to tell you the story of what's going on in those people's lives so that it brings some depth of meaning and understanding to the song. And I really like that concept. Now, we know that King David wrote a good number of the psalms. 
But only 13 of them have a superscription attached to them that tell us in verse 0. And by the way, I love that there's a verse 0 in some verses of the Bible, um, in some chapters. And in 13 chapters in the book of Psalms, verse 0 is telling us what the occasion of the song was. And for 13 of them, they are attached to specific episodes in the life of David. So you understand that to know the story behind the song really matters because it gives you a fleshed-out context for the feelings being expressed. Strong feelings, when they're expressed, touch us no matter what. But when you understand where they were coming from, they add a richness to that whole experience that is so important. And so I want to explore with you briefly the story behind this particular song that's to come. At a high point in King David's reign... He sinned greatly. At a time when the other kings went to war, he was on his palace rooftop looking around, and he happened to spy a woman who was bathing on her rooftop. I have no idea why the bathtubs were put on the roof. It seems like a really bad idea to me, but so it is. And she was very attractive, and he was captivated by her. And so he, because he was king, could do whatever he wanted. He arranged for this woman to come visit him. Now, here's the thing. She happened to be married to a man named Uriah, who also just happened to be one of David's closest friends and most loyal supporters. Uriah was not an Israelite, but even though he was a foreigner, he was deeply devoted to David. And in fact, David had a group of about 30 to maybe 37 men who were the best fighters, each one a Navy SEAL of antiquity, an intimidating fighter in his own right. Legends. Songs written about these guys for their prowess on the battlefield. And Uriah was one of those men. And yet David's desire was so great that he arranged for his friend to be murdered on the battlefield so that he could marry his widow. Well, that act, it's all recorded for you in 2 Samuel 11. There's more to that story. If you want to read the whole thing, 2 Samuel 11 has a story. But that act of sin would create a trickle-down cascade of events that would leave in David's family and personal life a long-standing legacy of brokenness and sin begetting sin. Some of you have experienced this in your own family line where a horrible act of hatred or evil has touched generation after generation after generation. And that's what happened In David's life, he was a pretty successful king. But for most of David's life, he had a horrible home and family life. David's oldest son, here's one example. David's oldest son, Amnon, fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Now, he has a half-sister because David made babies with lots of wives. And so these kids were related by father, but not really by mother. So you've got, well, I'm your, your brother, but only your half-brother, because we have different moms, same dad. Amnon fell in love with, which is to say he didn't really love her, he desired her. But she said, this is wrong, I'm your sister, can't happen. And so he raped her. It's brutal, and it's amazing to me that God allows such stories to be recorded in his holy book. They're not flattering to his people, and yet he allows it. What happened that the third son, Absalom, was the full brother of Tamar. They shared the same mom. He's like, that is messed up, and that's not okay. And for two years, Absalom plotted to find a way to kill Amnon. Because that, that offense could not go 
untreated. It couldn't just be left standing. And so, through deception, after two years of plotting, he murdered his brother Amnon. And then, fearing David's justice, he ran away. And for two years, he lived in exile. I'm sorry, for three years. After three years, and this is what happens usually, is things die down because people's memories aren't that long. And even if their memories are long, their feelings, it takes energy to keep hatred going, doesn't it? You've got to keep that fire burning with fresh logs. And so after three years, he feels like maybe David's got other things on his mind. So he sneaks back into town. And at that point, David knows, because the king knows what's going on in the city, he knows that Absalom's returned, but he refuses to see his son. He won't deal with it. He won't confront him. He won't even reconcile with him. He just acts like Absalom is not alive. Meanwhile, Absalom is yearning for some sort of reconciliation here. When he doesn't get it, he realizes he's dead to his father. And so Absalom begins a plot to steal the throne from his dad. He says, if you won't accept me and if I won't be in the line of descent the natural way, because Absalom was next in line for the throne. No one knows what happened to the second son, Daniel. He's never mentioned again after his birth, so probably he was dead. So number three is now first in line because he killed number one. And so Absalom says, if you won't just give me the throne, I'll take it from you. And he begins this campaign of politicking where he starts to make people in the city believe that he cares more about their problems than the king himself does. And it works. Because he's out at the city gate glad-handing people, complimenting them, asking after their welfare. And so little by little, and 2 Samuel 15, 6 says it so starkly, in this manner, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. He didn't steal the throne by force. He stole it by changing the hearts of the people. David was a smart guy. He saw the writing on the wall, and he realized if he and his supporters don't leave town right away, he's not going to last very long. His son will come and actually finish him off to complete the transfer of power. And so David, in shame and defeat, gathers up his supporters and all their families. They grab all the belongings they can carry, and they bolt out of town across the River Jordan and wait it out. It was in this context, having fled in shame and defeat from his own son, that he writes this song. It's important to know this backstory because sometimes you read about a person crying out to God and you're like, well, how do we know what the real story is? Well, that's the real story. What was ironic is that David happened to be living at that time in a period of hard-fought peace internationally and great prosperity for Israel. They had all the money they needed, and they were not at war with anyone else. And in that perfect setting, David finds himself at war with his own family and his own nation. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? Where the expected enemies are quiet, and the people who are supposed to be closest to you have become your enemies. Do you ever find that to be true? I have. And so we have the situation with David, where he's in a place that he never expected to find himself. And doesn't know what to do. I'm going to talk about conflict for a moment. Because if you're alive and you're a human being, you're going to experience conflict. It is the one thing. They say death and taxes are inevitable. Here's the third thing that will never 
be escaped if you're human. You're going to have conflict. To be alive is to know that conflict will be a part of that experience. And maybe your life experience is nothing near as crazy and intense as David's, but maybe it is. I read David's story, I'm like, well, I, I dodged that bullet. At least I don't think I'm going to be running for my life for my son who wants to be the pastor here and he's going to kill me. Like, who would want that anyway, right? But I, I'm not like looking over my shoulder like Noah's looking at me funny. I don't feel that. So I, I can't identify with David in his exact story. But I can identify with David in his feelings. Have you ever had that experience where the people you expected to be true to you have turned on you? Where for some inexplicable, and it's never inexplicable, okay? Very, very rarely do people just go insane and start to try to hurt you. It comes from somewhere, but from your place, uh, your point of view, I don't know where this is coming from. And just like that, someone seems to have it out for you. And you're like, what is this? Where is this coming from? Why is this happening? And we ask it like a rhetorical question. Does it ever feel like that? And that person is not just content to attack you on their own. They are raising an army of support around them against you. And even the allies you once had, you find are suddenly turning to enemies. David's whole world, in other words, is falling apart. He's got nowhere to turn. Now, My question for you is where do you find yourself turning when your world falls apart? I'm asking that as a serious question because you know what the right answer is in church. You don't even think about it. It's like Pavlov's dog, just Jesus. You're going to get an A if you say that. But I want to ask you to pause for a moment. Really pause. Take stock. Where do you find yourself turning instinctively when your world is falling apart. It's easy to say we turn to God. But I find more often than not, my natural response is to meet someone at Starbucks and pour out my story. And if I don't have anyone who'll listen to my story, then I find that the next natural response is for me to engage in damage control or take charge of the situation and fix the problem, whatever it takes. Because distress is not comfortable. And if there's anything I can do with my distress, I will do it. And so while we say in the midst of conflict that I turn to God, it's quite likely that that's not the truth of it. Because I believe that if we really did turn to God, conflict wouldn't rage nearly as long as I find that it does. Conflict was a reality in David's life, just like it will be a reality in ours. And it's not if you will have conflict, but the real question is, what does conflict do to you and in you? Where does it send you? Is your first response to pick up a phone? Or is it really to hit the floor? David was not exactly innocent in any of this. He was a crappy father. Legendarily so. Of all the fathers recorded in the Bible, I think he might reign among the worst. He was one of the worst dads that the Bible tells the story of. He set a terrible moral example for his children, and when he saw that they had inherited his sloppiness, 
his wickedness. He did nothing to intervene. He just watched and went, well, what am I going to do? I've got no leg to stand on. And so most scholars will agree with me here. Great king, terrible husband, terrible, terrible father. And yet, in spite of the fact that some of David's persecution was self-inflicted, it wasn't like Absalom just rose up out of nowhere. Yet, despite who we can assign blame to, what David did right when he was under attack, the one thing he did right again and again was he turned to God. I think that's remarkable to me because half our conflicts are, and it's not, please don't press me on this. I, I haven't done the math. I can't prove this. But some of our conflicts are self-inflicted and some of them are inflicted on us. Rarely, though, is any conflict done or occurs because one side is evil and the other is totally innocent. I've never really seen that outside of criminal cases. In most daily, normal, human life conflict, it takes two to tango. That's why as you're listening to this message, I would ask you not to listen to it self-righteously on the behalf of another. But hear for yourself. It really doesn't seem to matter to God right then whether the conflict is because of you or because of another. What matters to God is that we see conflict as an invitation to turn to him and grow, either through his comfort or through his correction, but to grow as we are driven by conflict, not to other people or to take charge of the situation, but to turn to God and say, I have nowhere else to go truly. There's nowhere else I can take this. So I ask you that question. When life is falling apart and you find yourself in conflict, to quote the great film Ghostbusters, who are you going to call? I hope that question stays with you for a while because it's very easy to answer with our mouth, but our lives often tell a different story. <clears throat> There's another element to this, and that is as David, in his distress, cries out to God, the one thing he's expressing about God is confidence that when he cries out to God, no matter the situation, God is willing to hear him and he does listen. When we're under attack and our world is falling apart, it's very easy to fixate on the conflict itself, to rehearse every detail. <clears throat> in fact, sometimes, um, and this has happened in, a, in so many meetings, a person's like, I don't want to forget anything, so they take out a piece of paper on which, in a Rain Man fashion, they've written down everything. I just didn't want to leave anything out. I get that. I've had that same impulse. I've kept files on my phone. Oh, yes, I remember and here's another one to add, and another one to add. And we can fixate on all the offenses done to us. Have you ever seen? It's probably a classic film by now. Have you seen Rain Man? It's one of the most profound depictions of a person who, because of a, a, a thing in his brain wiring, can't let go of anything. He just can't. He's not able to do it. And what a metaphor for the way we choose to be so often. I just won't let go of it. I can't, and because I've chosen not to so often now, I've lost ability. I can't now. It started as I won't, and it's become I can't let it go. And when you stare at the offenses of others and play it out again and again, the fire rages. 
and you can't stop thinking about it. And the longer you dwell on the reality of the conflict, the deeper your bitterness and discouragement become. It doesn't even matter if you have allies who's, who cry out their support of you, who say, you know, you're right to be mad, of course, let's kill them together. It doesn't matter. Even then, there's no real comfort because the conflict hasn't been dealt with. We've just got a war with allies on both sides. Do you realize that David didn't flee from Jerusalem alone? He had an entourage of his most ardent supporters, and they shouted in the cave at night, King David, you'll be restored to the throne. We're with you. No matter what, we're with you to the end. And even then, David, in the quiet of the night, after all others had fallen asleep, this was a burden he bore by himself. In that dark hour of the night, he wrote this poem saying, I have people with me, but I still feel like all I have is God. If you've ever really been pressed to the edge, you know what that feels like. All I have is God. And he looks at God in the quiet of the night and he says, You, Lord, are like a shield around me. My glory and the lifter of my head. He cried aloud to the Lord. and The Lord answered him from his holy hill. That phrase, holy hill, really points us to Hebrews chapter 12. And this week, I listened to, uh, you know, off, often, probably six to ten times a week, people text me a link to something. You got to read this. You got to listen to this. And I so appreciate it. I'm learning. I, I'll be honest with you. Um, for the longest time, I'm like, I really don't have the time or bandwidth to listen to everything and read everything people send me. I feel almost like a record executive getting demo tapes from everyone at the grocery store. And yet, I've learned more and more to listen to and read those things. If it moves someone's heart enough that they felt they had to share it, there's something of God in that. So this past week, on the busiest day of the week, a colleague sent me a link to a Francis Chan sermon. Now, I love and I resent Francis Chan. You know what I'm saying. I don't need to. So he preaches this message, and it's one of those, I think every other message Francis preaches is he was going to preach something else, but then the Lord gave him something right there. I'm like, come on, man. You've got to stop that. But I think it's true. And he preaches this message called the right view of God's presence. When I send the recap this week, I will include the link. I hope you will listen to that message. And he talks about Hebrews 12 in this crazy picture of God depicted in 18 to 29. Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. It's this crazy picture of God who he holds in tension two views of God, two pictures of God. One is God on the mountain giving Moses the Ten Commandments and saying he was such a frightening sound that the people below begged God to stop speaking because they could not handle the content and the rumbling and the terror that his voice evoked. Have you ever been so afraid of someone, you said, please stop talking, because I cannot handle what you are saying. It's too much for me. Even Moses, who it is written that God talked to Moses the way a friend talks to a friend, Moses' testimony is, I was struck dumb with fear and trembling when I saw that God on the mountain. And then the writer of Hebrews says, that's one picture of God, but here's the other picture. <clears throat> a vast throne room. 
and a multitude of angels that cannot be numbered. And they are all in one voice singing praise to one solitary figure. He is God and every angelic being who is higher even than us are shouting praises to one being. This is our God, so mighty, so much greater than the dear Abbey God we often ask. Lord, you know how it is. And we're just sort of talking to him the way we talk to any casual person next to us on the plane who will listen. And what Francis says is, if you could see who it is that is listening every time you pray, you would be awestruck. It would change your view of everything you're about to pray if you could see God. But instead, what he says is, it's more like this. People go to the Grand Canyon and they see this majestic thing. It's just a hole in the ground if you look at it from one side, okay? It's just a big, big hole. But on the other, it's a sight so majestic, even on this earth, that it touches you somewhere deep down. And yet he says there was a time when people would go and they would just stare and think. Now people come and they look at it for about two seconds and then their first thought is, I'm going to take a picture of myself. Think about that for a second. To stand in the front of something so majestic and your first thought is, I've got to look at me again. And that's the nature of the selfie and the selfie culture is that in a selfie, you are the foreground and everything else is the backdrop. Here's another way of looking at it. Here's a picture that cracks me up. This was taken at a campaign stop when Hillary Clinton was running for president. And this was in Orlando. And if you are from Fox News, you like to think all her supporters turned their back on her. That's not it, of course. But you understand, to get a selfie, this picture illustrates it so well. You have to actually turn your back on the object of your worship and awe so that you are in the foreground And that person is just the background. That's the heart of a selfie. And that's the heart with which so many people pray. We're we're saying that we talk to God, but it's not God we really see. God serves as the backdrop while we rehearse our pains and our grievances and the burdens that we're carrying. David's confidence is this. He saw the holy hill, and that reminds us of the mountain on which Moses was terrified by God. He says, I see that God. He strikes terror into me. Then I realize that's the same God who in Christ said that he would always be with me and for me. And suddenly, you feel totally not alone anymore. You realize that this mess I find myself in, in which people seem unwilling to change, in which both sides are arms crossed waiting for an apology, and you go, this is never going to get fixed. I don't see the light at the end of this tunnel. And then you see the God of light, and all of a sudden, everything else changes, and you realize, even though my situation hasn't changed, my hope profile has radically been altered. This is what confidence looks like. It's not that I'm confident things will get better. It's that I'm confident that the God I have just seen and spoken to is a God who is mightier than the things I'm up against. Here's the next consequence of this cascade of events here. 
David says this thing. It's comfort. David says, here's a weird next verse. He answered from his holy hill. Then I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? Why would you throw that in there? Who cares, man? You know what? And I can totally, this is a verse I think I can relate to maybe the most in this whole psalm. How many of you know that drama, conflict, enmity really does damage to your ability to sleep? Right? (laughs) You suffer insomnia because you're locked in conflict with someone and the thing won't change. Which is another way of saying, I won't change and they won't change and nothing will change. And so the first casualty of war in conflict is the peace of heart that is required to bring sleep. So here's how I know that David prayed, and it wasn't empty words, but he prayed and something happened, is that he was finally able to sleep. That's why he includes that in this prayer. That's not a casual statement of like, why'd you put that in there? That might be the most important statement here, autobiographically anyway. Is David saying, it was miraculous. I was in turmoil. I could not sleep. I wrote this poem. I prayed to God. And as I saw him on his holy hill, and he answered me and said, David, you dummy, calm yourself. You know that half this problem is because you're a terrible daddy. And the other half is because Absalom's a terrible son. But I'm an awesome God. Assigning blame will go nowhere. But you all need to shut up and see me. I will take care of this. And David heard that and saw that. The fact that he slept was so important. See, we see the reality of our conflict. And the question is, do we really see the reality of God? How do you know you've seen him? Because comfort, real comfort, comes as a result. I was thinking about how do I explain this in a way you can understand me and the best analogy I could come up with is this I think in analogies not because you need it it's because I need it my little brain requires analogies to really grasp a concept I'm a control freak I don't know if you you know this about me but I'm kind of a control freak I've worked so hard in my adult life not to live in that but I don't think I've succeeded and one of the places my control freakishness really shows itself is I have a very hard time letting other people drive. Okay? I used to drive from here to Montrose, Pennsylvania for oil every year, the oil conference, one in love. Not petroleum, but oil, like one in love. That was about like a, depending on whether, an 18 to 20-hour drive in the winter. And then we would get about two hours of sleep a night on average as pastors while we were there, and then I'd have to drive the 18 hours back to Chicago with about four or five young adults in the car with me. Now, they had slept way more than I had, I think. But here's me. I can't get out from behind the wheel. So one year, this this young guy begged me, he goes, Pastor Dave, you look kind of sleepy. I'm a little worried. Can I please drive? And so I finally pulled over I got out, and I took the passenger seat, and I let him drive. And I stayed awake the whole time. Because I realized, and here's the fear, is if I close my eyes, I will wake up in heaven. 
That's what, I truly believed it. So here's what I learned from that. I had turned over the wheel, but I hadn't actually turned over my trust or my life to this young man. I was standing ready to grab the steering wheel when he did what I was sure he would do, because clearly the only one I can really trust is me. I think that illustration really exposes something true about the prayer life of so many in the church. My question to you is, do you just list your burdens or do you lift your burdens to God? Because that's a very big difference. God can be a passive audience while you just rehearse the list of everything wrong in your life, in other people. Oh, Lord, here are my grievances. I'm not saying he doesn't want to hear it. But what is the value of listing things to God? That's like putting everything in a shopping cart and then picking up the shopping cart and walking around the store. There's no point, is what I'm saying. And it's possible to pray in this way where I tell God everything and then I take it right back and carry it around still. And you'll know you've done that because at the end of all of the reaching up to God, you still have no peace. You still can't sleep. It's still a burning poison stuck in your throat and you can't let it go. The great sign that we have actually unloaded to God who is able is that comfort and a real peace ensues. Not a peace we've convinced ourselves we feel. Not a numbness or coldness, but a real peace. And here's the important thing. It's not just that you can sleep, but you wake up, and it's not like, oh yeah, I forgot. My life is hell. It's you wake up and you say, God is still the one who carries me. That's the real gift of sleep, is not that it shuts it off for a while, but that even when you wake up and nothing around you has changed, you've changed. You've changed. I've got to give you one last thing, and then we'll end. Having gone through this process of being in conflict and having confidence in a God who's so great that when you talk to him, it changes the way you see everything else. And having unloaded or lifted your burdens to him, real comfort enters your heart. Now, that's a wonderful experience. If you can experience that in your life, it will solidify your faith in God. But here's that last step. Conviction. David says in a final thing to God, Arise, Lord, and save me, O my God. And now the next thing he says is a little raw in our um, modern day. We have to unpack this a little bit. He says, you strike them on the cheek and you break their teeth. It's very possible that means exactly what you probably have felt is, hit them, Lord. Hit them and then just do that to their teeth. And it could be that. There, he wouldn't be human if he didn't feel that. But I believe that this is not a prayer of spite. It's a prayer of surrender. I believe what David is saying to God is I want so badly, you know, striking on the cheek is a sign of humiliation, of humbling, of putting someone in their place. And the breaking of teeth 
is a symbol literally for taking the bite out of someone's ferocity. Like a gnashing animal, you punch its teeth out and all it can do is gum you. It's not terribly a frightening thing anymore. What David's saying is, I'm so tired of this. The venom, the hatred, the politicking. I'm so tired of all of it. I'm so tired of everyone's advice. I'm so tired of everyone's well-wishing, whatever. And you're just, you want to shut it all out. And you want justice more than anything. I will have my day in court. And yet this prayer to God is this. That's not my job in the end. Nor can I achieve it if I set out to get it. I can get vengeance, but I, an unjust person, cannot bring justice to this world. It's not possible, but God can. And so this prayer of surrender as he closes is this. I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to create my own justice. I want to instigate confrontation. And sometimes confronting is necessary. Don't get me wrong. But what David says in the end is my real confidence is never going to be in what I can do here. I will say at the end, you've got to do it, God. My enemies are rising. You arise too. That's not going to be a fair fight. There's tens of thousands against me, but there's a great God with me. So arise, Lord. You fight for me because in the end, salvation, translated in other ways, deliverance. That's your business, and it comes from you. You know, David, like all of us, was a very imperfect man. And because he was imperfect, and he lived in a world with imperfect people, conflict was the one consistent theme in his life. The thing that David did right in all conflict was that he turned to God. That's really the invitation to us. We dwell so much on assigning blame. Once you've assigned it all correctly, does anybody feel any better? Have you ever fixed a thing? Have you ever raised your child properly by going, do you admit it? Did you do it? Yes, it's all your fault. And if that's the end of it, nothing is learned except I'm horrible and life is broken. Where is the great God in the midst of all this mess? Or is it just us animals running the farm? Where is God? Isaiah, the prophet, speaking about the Messiah who was to come, said these words. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Some 700 years later, our Lord Jesus fulfilled these words of prophecy in his life. Mark 15, 3 to 5 records for us that the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. As I close, let me read for you one verse out of Hebrews 
that explains what was happening there. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, Jesus, was heard because of his reverence. Because he chose to silently trust in God to be his defender and deliverer. Now, I hope you'll be careful not to hear this the wrong way. There are times when we must speak, speak truth, speak it with courage. But you should never trust your own courage or directness to achieve what only God and his power can achieve in the heart of another person. We must do our part in obedience, but never for a moment be deluded into believing that your obedience is what changes the world. The power of God changes the world. Your obedience just allows you to join him in that. I've confronted courageously so many times in my career to no effect. And I think in those times, very often I can say in honesty, I trusted my courage more than I trusted God. Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you in a place where you want to cry out to God for a song of deliverance? Where does your heart take you when your world is falling apart? Who do you see when you close your eyes to pray? And when you see him, will you hand over your burdens and not just list them? May it be his gift to us that as we go through this process like David did, that a supernatural peace will wash over us, take away the sting of anger and hurt, and set the table for real reconciliation to come. Let's pray together. been my experience over 25 years here that in so many of the conflicts that I've seen rock our church both parties could see themselves in the place of David perplexed, attacked on all sides, hurt offended I've seen it in marriages, I've seen it in friendships I've seen it in families crazy thing about conflict is it blinds us so often the one thing we should see clearly in every conflict is that there is a great God who sits above all of this and if we are in the right he will come he will come to deliver us and vindicate us we don't have to save ourselves and if we are in the wrong, then in our crying out to God, He will firmly but lovingly tell us that we also need to repent. 
It's possible to nurse a grudge for the rest of your life apart from God. But in His presence, kneeling in His throne room, wars will cease and peace will come. That is what He does. I'm going to leave you with that and ask you in the next minute of silence to respond to Him in your own voice and from your own heart. What a great song to end on. I don't think our Heavenly Father is surprised that His children fight. That at times it feels to us like everyone who should be with us is against us. Remember this. Your God is always with you and for you. And if you could see Him, that promise would have great power to affect the way you feel. It could even help you sleep at night and experience a comfort and a peace that doesn't come from psychology but comes from the Spirit and the presence of God. This is my prayer for you, my church family. Then the storms of conflict and enmity, our Heavenly Father in His holy hill who is greater than everything that affects us will give you peace and will speak to you and carry the burdens you lift and that you will see the other side of that conflict and there will be reconciliation that honors him and blesses you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.